Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at day two of a conference in Edmonton. Today's the actual Edmonton Real Estate Forum. There's about 850 people here. It's good to see these forums back in action. We have a repeat guest today. Curtis Way joined us three years ago at this very conference before COVID disrupted everything, but we're happy to have him back. We're going to have a real focus on the Edmonton market in our discussion today, construction, affordability. Curtis, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much, guys. I appreciate the invite again. You know, just for context, he's the CEO of RMS Group. And maybe as a starter, we'll get into your background just to set the stage for the conversation. Sure, absolutely. RMS Group is a fully integrated real estate development company. We, as it says, take real estate deals right from ground up. So we buy land, hire consultants, build buildings ourselves. We have our own construction division. And when completed, we turn the buildings over to our property management division and manage them. On a holistic basis, we sell probably 20-25% of what we build, just to recapitalize. But the strategy behind the firm is to maintain assets for the long term. It's a family company and, you know, I guess hopefully my grandchildren will see the benefit of the hard work over the last 25-30 years. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Buying and holding real estate has been a proven formula for a long time. How do you pick the 25% that you choose to release back into the wild? Being an Alberta-based company, I mean, of course, we run through economic cycles that we haven't had the constant growth that Vancouver and Toronto have had over the last 10 years. And so a lot of our choice to sell happens to be when the economy allows us to sell product to make a profit. So you've got to be pretty strategic in our business in terms of what you do and when you do it. As far as capitalization goes, as you guys know, real estate is very capital intensive. And so we got to really watch ourselves that we don't get over-levered. I mean, when you have a down cycle, the worst thing you can do is be over-levered. And all of a sudden you have financial difficulties, can't meet your obligations. And I've seen a lot of my competitors over the years fail by not being able to sell when they had to sell. And that's really something you've got to be careful. So the answer to that is looking for the economic highs is when we sell. We don't sell at the lows. We should mention or bring up that in Alberta, it's a little bit of a different environment than the rest of the country. If you're sitting in Vancouver or Toronto or Montreal or Halifax or anywhere else, you haven't had the experience of what Curtis has gone through in Alberta because there's basically five-year cycles with the energy sector moving up and down. So you're way more programmed to be conservative and be prepared for the next cycle versus having obviously rising interest rates May 18th just for those that are keeping score. Rates are up 200 basis points. Those that are sitting in Vancouver and Toronto, they haven't really experienced a cycle yet. Yet you're conditioned to it. Absolutely. You're 100% right. And it's funny, the economist that spoke this morning from the BMO talked about that very thing that Alberta's seen. And his words were, we run in a six to seven year cycle here. And he's right on the money. And the price of oil drives the economy in Alberta. We're well positioned for this next run. And it's interesting. He talked about the downturn in Toronto today. We in Alberta are, are poised to uh, increase. Like We've already raised our rents in our apartments by $100 pretty much across the board in the last two months. And that's just the way of the world. We're starting to see some migration in, which is helpful. And we've had four or five years of pretty slow picking, so to speak. I was going to ask which year we're in of the six or seven year cycle right now. Right at taking off. There's no doubt in my mind it started last fall, the fall of 2021. Our uptick started because the price of oil was significantly up last September, October. Funny, I talked to people yesterday in the conference and they talk about, well, how long is the Alberta boom going to be? It's a short boom. And I said, it can't be a short boom. 
the world needs oil. With all these so-called experts saying carbon is done, carbon's over. Yeah, well, carbon's not done for a while. So, <laughs> I mean, you're still driving cars and buses and trucks with diesel and gas. Anyhow, we're at the beginning of the uptick for Alberta. I hope it's four, five, six years. But, you know, as you all know, time will tell. And are you worried at all about interest rates or construction costs or supply chains and that maybe disrupting the natural cycle? Absolutely. We have a project under construction now that we started last summer. Of course, back a year ago now, we were pricing the structure. It was designed as a six-story wood frame building. We were just chasing the price of lumber up and up and up. We couldn't buy lumber. We tried to buy from the mills directly. And we're talking a project that's in 175 units. It's 240,000 square foot building. That's a lot of lumber, a lot of two by sixes and so on. And we just couldn't buy the product. So we ended up switching to Lake Age Steel. You know, it was another $15 a square foot. I made the decision, said, well, okay, let's go with a non-combustible building, a little less cost on insurance. The cap rate will come down because a lot of the life companies will buy non-combustible where they won't buy wood frame. So we made that decision, go ahead. Well, of course, then supply chain problems really hit us hard right about Christmas. And on our, the steel from our suppliers, it's sitting on a boat in China, then it's got to get on the boat, and then it sits in the harbor in Vancouver for two weeks. I mean, all these supply chain problems just really compounded. And like we end up, our steel installer is now almost five months behind schedule. Thank God we'll be able to pick up some of that schedule with other trades, you know, drywall finishes and such. But that's a good example of some of the problems that have gone on. Those problems aren't going away. I got asked yesterday by many people, they said, well, what do we do about pricing? Should we wait? Prices are going to come down. And my answer is absolutely do not expect prices to come down. The supply chain problem is not going away soon. So then what does that do to your pro forma if you're having to all of a sudden adjust to steel and five-month delays? You know, how impactful is that to your target return? Well, we put the steel number in. We just, frankly, ponied up more cash. It's more equity in to go to steel. The issue on delay a project is interest. It's two things. It's loss of income and increase of interest costs. A lot of developers don't understand or are not ready for that. I had yesterday at the apartment forum, it was interesting to talk to quite a few lenders that said, even though CMHC's got this new select program where you can finance 95%, the lenders are saying, you know, we don't think we can take chances at 95%, especially with developers that don't have experience. If they don't have track records, they're not going to get financing even under that program because what happens if prices go up another 5 or 10%, which is quite possible, especially like the project we're doing in the west end of the city here is an $80 million cost. I mean, if prices go up even 5%, it's 4 or $5 million cash call. A lot of guys don't have that in their pocket. Yeah, and that needs to be on hand or work stops. Okay. You better have yeah, it someplace. We're not, you're not going to go sell some land to figure out how to get <laughs> yeah, that cash, exactly. right? Like, yeah. That's well, not going to work. And it's funny, you know, I mean, a lot of developers don't have a $5 million line of credit. Most guys are doing one project at a time. So. What other items are you finding supply chain disruptions? You told a story yesterday about bathtubs. Yes, yeah. Oh, you know, it's funny. This goes back into the fall. We had a 175-unit project. There was a shortage of bathtubs. And, of course, bathtubs are one of the first things you going. put into a project. That is kind of an issue where the wholesaler didn't have bathtubs for us. We'd ordered them months ahead of time. And we ended up calling the VP of real estate at Wolseley in Ontario and said, we've got this order in. Like, guys, we need these tubs. So he goes to the head in their supply chain department and gets us these bathtubs. But had we not had that relationship... 
good Lord. I mean, we could still be waiting for tubs five months later. Well, and that's part of the reason lenders are more likely to lend to somebody that has the existing strong relationships. You know, with anything in turbulent times, flight to quality exists straight across the board. And that includes, of course, who lenders want to lend money to. Exactly. You know, you're 100% right. You know, it's interesting. We have lots of discussion with inflation now and how do you manage rents? How do you manage costs? Constantly, I heard yesterday from other developers in the same position I'm at, how do we justify starting a new project today when we don't know where the costs are going up 5, 10, 20% and rents, you know, in theory, when you have an inflationary times, rents have to go up, but rents don't go up instantly. There's a lag period, right? It takes six months, 10 months, 12 months for rents to catch up to the world, so to speak. Well, and that's the critical part is if you're worried about cost overruns, make sure your deal still works if they're yes, in place. Yeah, yeah and you better yeah. have some buffer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see over the next while, will lenders start to say you need a bigger contingency? I'll spike late on that as a lender, obviously, but yeah, that's definitely going to be part of it. Or, you know, as you said, maybe you underwrite to more of a standard contingency, but demonstrate the ability to cut a big check on short notice if there's another outsized increase. And, and, and as you know, loan to value in your portfolio is a big deal. If you're levered to 75 or 80% loan to value, that's not going to cut it. And that's why a lot of us guys that have been around for a while, we try and keep ourselves down to 60, 65% loan to value. So we have that equity base that we can draw on if we need it. Yeah, and that pays off in times like this. You might have looked longingly at 1.5% interest rates in 2020 and think, boy, if I was levered all the way up, what would that do? But then, you know, short two years later, you go, no, no, that's definitely the right strategy. And who knew it was going to go up as fast as it did? It's funny, I get the first national rates from you guys every morning. It's funny how this is. I printed April 27th, 2021 interest rate, the bond rate, the GIC, the CMB, and I hand wrote on there, my prediction in a year from now, what the 10-year rates were going to be. And I had predicted the 10-year mortgage rate was going to be at 3.4 to 3.75%. Well, actually, we're above that at April 27th. But at the time, you would have got feedback that that's pretty conservative. You know, you've got a very large assumption in there, but yeah, it didn't. But I thought I was being aggressive. Like, I really thought that I got this covered, and I was less than it actually ended up being. So it's pretty interesting how the world changed so quickly, and sometimes for reasons we don't expect. Yeah, I mean, nobody had, you know, war in Ukraine on the horizon and the impacts that would have. Not to, obviously, to disparage the economists. They are very good at what they do, and they're absolutely worth reading. But the prediction for this year was kind of slow and gentle. Near the end of the year, we maybe see some increase, and then all of a sudden, a rocket ship took off in early March. And, you know, the thing about our economy is when I took economics at college, it was a lot of theory, and there was a lot of history to track why certain things happen. Those days are long gone. It's not a Canadian economy. It's a world economy. And I've listened to economists and guys make forecasts. There's so many outside influences now. I mean, Ukraine's a classic example. The Russians blew up one of the biggest steel mills in Europe. We have huge, huge supply cost problems. We got a cost increase in April. We were told back in Christmas to allow 30% increase in reinforcing steel come April 1. I haven't confirmed with my guys in the construction department, but I'm pretty sure it was awful close to 30% as April 1st. So that's just an example of where things are unsure, unstable, or you really don't know. Now, will everything go up 30%? No, but I think we're over the big jump or the big hump has gone by us. I think it's fair to say to you guys that we are about 22% over our costs from where we were a year ago. That's holistically our big number. Is that just hard costs? That's just construction. 
What about labor? That's another variable that we hear about. I mean, in Toronto right now, there are rolling strikes and all sorts of different issues and different components of whether it's the crane operators or the formers or whoever it may be. Do you have the similar kind of experiences here? Is that one of those costs that's just going to be consistently stressed? Yeah, it's for sure labor's an issue. I mean, it's been an issue in Vancouver and Toronto for years. We haven't had those problems until recently. Give a good example, you know, we've got a project, as I say, under construction. We've had a ad out for journeyman carpenters for probably six, eight weeks now. Number one, we don't get qualified journeyman apply. We ask them if they have their red seal. That's almost like a, what is that kind of an answer? They have no idea what a red seal is. They just bought a hammer and they're yeah, ready to work. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, you've got those problems. But, you know, as an example, I mean, an average carpenter wage in Alberta is in the high 30s. Pick a number, 37, 38, 39, what are the numbers? We're finding that guys now are being offered 42 an hour, 43 an hour. And so that's a significant percentage increase just since Christmas. Labor input on a pro forma is significant. Well, I mean, so steel, like so is interest cost. You know, there's a number of yeah, there's, you know, significant line items that yeah, are yeah, taking and, a run-up. And, and broad brush, labor is anywhere from 45 to 50% of your cost of your building, and materials are 50 to 55%. So, yeah, we've got labor going up in excess of, call it 10%, just in three months. This is not a new situation in Alberta. I think when oil is really strong back in... 2012, 2013, 2014. There's all the stories you hear about people just poaching on active job sites, pulling up in a truck and saying, you know, hey, $5,000 bonus if you want to come work for us and losing half your job site. And it's going to get worse in Alberta. Alberta, Saskatchewan, and some of BC is going to be a bigger problem. With the oil projects, the mega projects, I mean, these guys are reporting, you know, Suncors of the world are reporting billion-dollar quarters, like profits of a billion dollars type of thing. So I know they have dusted off a lot of their capital projects that were put on hold. Those projects are coming back to be reality. It's going to take them six months to a year to update their engineering, update the campaign. But I think we are going to see labor costs go up in Alberta here shortly. The good news is Ontario is slowing down. I saw the stats. That is not good news. Well, (laughs) yeah, but it is from a labor point of view. I mean, you guys have such increase in real estate, it's been to the point of almost ridiculous. No economy likes to have hyperinflation or real estate going through the roof by 30% a year. It doesn't do anybody any good. But I think when these mega projects start up, Dow just announced a $10 billion kind of a hydrocarbon-related kind of project. Well, $10 billion is a lot of labor in that. So they're not staffing up yet, though. This is still... They're still in the design state. Yeah, okay. next year, wow. more or less, we're going to see all these carpenters, laborers, electricians, plumbers, pipe fitters. And now that wage is going to go from... 42 to 45 or 46. Countrywide labor as an issue. This would be a uniquely Alberta problem. So then on the counterpoint, you know, obviously strong energy pricing is good for this province. Do you expect to see that be a tailwind for rental rate growth in your market? Yeah, as I said earlier, we've already seen the rental increase. And pro forma wise, you have to get more. One of the downfalls for all of us as developers, and you guys being bankers, you know this, you give us money based on a moment in time. So we have construction costs now, we have income now, and whatever the interest rate is, we think in the next 12 to 24 months. I mean, the reality is rents are going to go up, and they have been going up in Ontario by whether it's 5, 10, 15% a year. We got the same thing about to happen here in Alberta and Saskatchewan to some degree as well, because a lot of the labor, you know, the labor pool that works in the, in the Fort McMurray area is Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon. Those guys are all flying to the north. And the Newfoundlanders used to be a major supply of labor to the north. I'm not so sure how much of that is carried on in the last five or six years. Not that I want to be 
negative, but you're working a project right now. Let's say it completes tomorrow. Are you launching a new project immediately? With the, we're talking about the pricing and interest rates yeah. and all that. Are you breaking ground uh, yeah. next day? No, I think uh, we are this fall. It's a 350-unit project. And it's kind of funny how that originally that was a wood frame building three years ago. And, of course, COVID hit. Things were a little unsettled. So we put it on the shelf. We looked at increasing it to seven or eight stories with light-gauge steel, a little higher density. We're up over 400, 450 units. And then, of course, with steel being as unreliable as it was and with some of the supply chain issues in the Ukraine and stuff, we thought, well, let's go back to wood. At least it's a product we have in Canada and we can get. So we're back down to 350 units. Regardless, our plan is to go ahead with it because interest rates aren't going to go down. I mean, I think our big risk there is to lock the rates in. And so one of the programs that we heard yesterday, and we've already been on this, is the CMHC Select Program. MLI Select. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, MLI Select. Select, yeah. yeah. And so I think that's one that if we can find a lender to forward fix for us, we would lock it in immediately. We did that on the project that's currently under construction. We got lucky. We forward fixed a 10-year term at 2.72% last September. That's paid dividends. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, you look pay, like a genius sitting pay, here today. Paid a that. couple points yeah. more, you know, and, and yeah. everybody's saying, you sure want to pay that few point premium? I said, yeah, we'll pay the premium. Yeah. I mean, it's for, like we're at least a percentage point higher well, today. Yeah, exactly. For, yeah, for context, I think the interest rates for 10 years around 3.94%, right? So it's yeah, so, sitting pretty. Yeah. And so if I could do that again on this next one, I would. I mean, the reason we were able to do that, of course, it was a CMHC insured program. It's worth mentioning for anybody who's not familiar with the MLI Select program, there's a few criteria to qualify for, but affordability is one of them, which is something you've worked with in the past, which I believe to be your current project now. It's got a unique, affordable aspect to it. That would not have been a CMHC MLI Select loan. So what did you do to finance that? Actually, that project was a CMHC finance project. I can't remember the program name. We did the financing oh, with First National. Uh, Flex, probably, the predecessor to uh, Select. So, yeah, yeah, it's a predecessor. Yeah. So that was an interesting program. We partnered with what was Capital Regional Housing, which is now rebranded as Savita. They manage about four to 5,000 units in Edmonton. They're all subsidized in one shape or form. A lot of those units are owned by the province and city of Edmonton, and they own some of them themselves. They're a not-for-profit organization. The partnership there was the first of its kind in Canada. We replicated a program that was been done in the United Kingdom and New Zealand. It's funny that we didn't know we were replicating their programs until we were mostly way through it. But we both put in capital, a capital contribution. A minimum of 20% of the units were a true CMHC mid-market discount. So rents were discounted between 20 and 30%. Then we had another regime of rentals that we discounted $100, and then the rest were market. And so the benefit to the not-for-profit is they now have income from this project that they can use to seed other projects. And the other thing is that Savita has clients, they call them clients, that are in need of housing, and they can transition them from deep discount to mid-market. So what they take is a lot of their customers or clients maybe need training, they send them to get some college training, they go to college, they bring them into a mid-market housing project like Pine Creek Manor, and that person say, for instance, has a 30% discount off the rent, they get a part-time job, then they get a full-time job after they're retrained, and they don't leave the apartment. They stay in the apartment, and they can stay right up until the rental is at market of that apartment. As an example, they go from a $1,000 a month rent 
to a $1,500 rent without leaving the apartment. And so with this project, there are no actual subsidized units. Any unit can be subsidized, whether it's one bedroom or two bedroom, it didn't matter. The subsidization It's just tenant dependent. Yeah. I remember you telling this story three years ago, and I love the concept that, I mean, it's not a social housing or you're bringing them in, getting them on their feet, and then moving them out. There's this dislocation, right? Where now it's like, no, you stay here. It has this more comfort for those individuals as they're getting themselves into a better position in their lives. One of the biggest problems Savita has is that they can't get people to move to a better job because they'll lose their cheap rental subsidies. Uh-huh. It's very interesting though. You know, we don't, as private developers, we don't see that side of their world. So they can say to Mrs. Smith that, don't worry, just pay your $50 a month more, pay your $100 a month more. They're not losing their $500 discount. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So we touched on construction, of course, and some of the runaway costs. What are you doing in your portfolio to give you access to liquidity for these very uncomfortable increases in prices? Well, of course, you know, as I said earlier, loan to value or debt is a big part of it. And having the ability to have cash, lines of credit, whatever you need to help you through. And I would call more it's like an emergency fund, just having that money so that you can actually have access to it. Just recently, we did a line of credit with our banker. And it was a very interesting conversation about how they are looking at the future for debt service. On this particular situation, they view 6.6% as their benchmark for debt service because it's a line of credit that floats. And I thought that was interesting. So what does that tell the rest of us? I mean, what's the bank rate today, 3.7? Rates that we're underwriting now, these metrics would have been unheard of, unfathomable back in February. And the impact on loans is significant and people's ability to borrow. I'll tell you, Curtis, the way that we look at it, because there is the uncertainties, particularly when we're looking at development projects, we're trying to figure out what interest rates to use to underwrite for the exit in 12, 24 months. And our general guidance to our underwriting teams is just use 50 basis points a year. And just to be safe, because you don't want to miss this, because you don't want to be putting the client in a bad situation where they're heavily over-levered at the point of terming out. So if interest rates are 4% today, we're underwriting at a 5%, right? That's just the way you got to look at it. And you can always work backwards as you get closer to that exit date, like when you get closer to terming out to a long-term financing. But right now, when you're putting shovels in the ground, that's the way we have to look at it. Well, and it's interesting. I've got a friend in Winnipeg that is just at the tail end of a fairly large mid-rise apartment, and their CMHC financing capped at a, I can't remember the exact interest rate, this is a month ago, he exceeded that by 50 basis points. It was a $10 million cash call. Yeah. So that just gives you the order of magnitude of some of this, guys are in some bigger deals. Like, And now, that was a month ago, so here we are another month later. I mean, if it hadn't locked in then, his cash flow would be 20 million. We're seeing that across the board. Unfortunately, at least the First Nationals case, all of our clients have the liquidity to bring money to the table and deal with it. I'm sure there are other stories out there where they don't have the liquidity. Well, they can't well, you, bring you, the money to the table. You think about it, a lot of real estate's done in limited partnerships, LPs. If you've got 10 partners that all got to pony up a million dollars, not a lot of those guys can pony up a million dollars. So it causes some heartache for some of these guys doing these deals. That's the worst part is you know you successfully navigate a construction project, you successfully lease up, and then the very large speed bump you run in happens to be your exit financing. Yeah. At that point, you think you're home free, but clearly not. <laughs> This is the yeah. sad part of it. I'm sure everybody here can hear the background noise. It is obvious we are, in fact, at a forum. We're not making it up. We're out partway through the day. Any big takeaways from any of the speakers yet today? Very interesting comments from the Honorable Doug Schweitzer. He's the Minister of Jobs and Economy.
economy for the province. Great speaker. I've never met the man, but it was a phenomenal speaker. He was talking about the diversification in Alberta, and the UPC here has done a pretty good job, I think, in just trying to diversify us away from oil. You know, we've now got hydrocarbon projects here. They've recreated the film tax credits. There's been so many things that they've done to try and diversify us in Alberta that I'm really happy to see that because that helps with our stability. You know, we've got agriculture, we got forestry. Of course, we know oil and gas is a big part of the province, but we get some of this technology uh, stuff. I mean, Calgary's seeing more of the technology business than maybe Edmonton, but the upgrading offshoot of the oil industry that we can do here, it's a great place to do that. You know, if I mentioned the Dow, they just announced a $10 billion project in what they call the Heartland District, which is north of the city of Edmonton. And that's to do with the hydrocarbons and how to handle them and deal with them and not just deep them, you know, they call deep six them. This is actually dealing with them. So there's an example of the things in Alberta that we're seeing coming along. So I'm really confident that the growth in Alberta is we're not going to see the valleys that we've seen in the past because I think provincially the government's done a pretty good job in trying to get us some of these other businesses that give us more stability in terms of job creation. You know, guys, one of the things that came up today that I thought it's worth mentioning one of the ministers spoke, was about the cost of housing in Edmonton. I didn't realize this myself, but our average cost of house in Edmonton is just over $400,000 compared to, I think it's a million dollars in Toronto. It's a great place from a bring immigrants perspective, you know, and of course, I think that's why it's no coincidence that we need the immigrants to come to Alberta in particular to help fill these jobs. And I heard an interesting comment yesterday about immigration, and we don't need temporary workers, we need permanent workers. And I think that's probably the next big challenge for the province here. I know ourselves, we're looking at bringing in immigrant workers on a contract, two-year contract, to see if we can't get them to migrate here, particularly trades. Like, that for us is a big issue. We really are short of trades, and we haven't had to do that. We've always been able to bring workers in from other parts of the country. That seems to be have gone away on us, and we're now looking at bringing in foreign workers. It's one of those things that's challenges all around. You get paid to solve problems, right? That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, that's why you get paid the big bucks. You're yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> it was easy. Everybody would do it, right? Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of three and four o'clock mornings wide awake <laughs> trying to solve my problems, trust me. <laughs> well, we we're almost out of time here. And funnily enough, you know, if anybody's listening to the background noise, it's actually getting quieter in here just in time for the end of yeah, our Yeah, we didn't time that very well, did we? No, no, we got peak conference yeah, going on. Curtis, what's your closing thoughts on the Alberta market? You know, and let's end on a high note because we did focus on some well, of the challenges let, let earlier. let me put a little twist on that one. It's about inflation. I've had many discussions over the last few days with people on inflation, and I had a pretty significant disagreement with a broker, a mortgage broker yesterday, and he said, oh, this inflation, it's two years tops, rates have come down, and I just said, give your head a shake, buddy. This is a freight train. It's wound up. These supply chain issues are not going away. In China, you can't lock people up in their apartments because of COVID and not expect them to come out of their apartments and want to buy products. So that's a good example. You've got China. You've got Ukraine. I mean, there are, I don't know if it's trillions, but it's billions for sure. If not trillions of dollars are going to get spent in the Ukraine. So where are they going to get the bathtubs? Where are they going to get the steel, the wood? Somebody's got to supply that product to them. Maybe the only sort of saving grace might be that the American housing side has started to slow a little bit. So maybe the cost of lumber or the demand for lumber won't be as bad in the next year or two or three. But we have so many pent-up demands or so many things coming down the line that I believe very strongly inflation is here for four or five years. I really do. And anybody that thinks it's less than that, I think they're kidding themselves. And the BMO economist this morning talked about 
be ready for inflation. And he's made the same comment I'm making. Guys are saying, oh, well, it's just a short-term thing. He said, plan for the worst because it could be worse than you think. And I grew up in a time, I bought my first house, interest rates were 13%. Yeah, which is absolutely inconceivable, the current reality. But to that point, if inflation, high inflation is here for four or five years, then high interest rates, relatively speaking, to what we've had yeah, you know, in the last yeah. while, are here as well for a sustained period. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see with the Bank of Canada raising interest rates, we know already it's starting to have an impact on housing. I think that's kind of a good thing in some respects. But I know that the economist for the ATB is a little worried that the Bank of Canada is going to raise rates too fast. I think the economist from the BMO actually touched on that this morning as well. It's great to get things under control, but then all of a sudden you can cause damage by raising rates too fast. It's a fine line. I think they're watching it. Like There was somebody out of the Bank of Canada came out giving a speech, and they were talking about how they are going to take their cues from the housing market in particular and watch what's going on with the housing market. Because that, to your point, if you raise rates too quickly, like you could cause some serious damage in the residential market. They're watching that. Which, is, again, is kind of outside of their mandate, though, right? Which is a, a little strange bit, but expansion but, of considerations, but, well, political well, I considerations. I don't know. Is the governor of Canada's job on the line? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is he going to get fired? <laughs> Real estate, speaking out of single family, not this kind of stuff that we work on, but is such a rock bed of our economy in Canada. They do need to be mindful of it. So I'm not opposed to that being consideration, but I would point out that it is outside their original mandate. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you guys are, if not the largest CMHC lender in Canada, you're right at the top for sure. Actually, we're double the second largest. We're twice as big as anybody else. Oh, there you go. Okay, so you know (laughs) the amount of money that goes out the door on housing in this country. It's huge. If you stop that money going out the door, it does have a big impact on a lot of things. And a lot of people's huge percent of their net worth is tied up in their house. It's very real for a lot of people. Well, it's interesting. Today, we saw again, the BMO economist showed us that since the beginning of COVID, Canadians have deposited an increase of $247 billion in the bank. That's in two and a half years. And he said it's very fractured. The people that are in their 20s and 30s don't have the money. The people's in their 70s and 80s have the money. So Too much money. But $247 billion is put in banks in two years. That's an increase. Buy some bank stock, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Curtis, I think we're out of time. Thanks very much for making the time to sit with us. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to the Real Estate Forums for hosting us. And again, Curtis, looking forward to the next one. It was a pleasure, guys. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.